The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's the start of a new year, time for something new, something fresh, and so we turn to the bard of cleansing. Omit needless words, hammer home the nouns and verbs, talk like a telegram, strip down your prose to its naked newborn self. Read all the Faulkner you can get your hands on, the writer John Gardner told his student Raymond Carver, and then read all of the Hemingway to clean the Faulkner out of your system. Hemingway's style was clipped and curt, much admired and easily parodied, and while that might tend toward the simplistic and could lead to characters who are emotionally stunted, in his hands and at his best, it could be compelling, deep and moving in spite of its hard-boiled exterior. Mark Chirino is our guest today, and in another country is our Hemingway story. The country is Italy. The characters are soldiers and non-soldiers dealing with their wounds. The opening sentence is one of the most famous in Hemingway's oeuvre. We'll have all that plus a piece of Kafka today on the History of Literature. go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Happy New Year, and I am glad you're here. Let's get started. So, today, I'm going to try something new. I got a new book for Christmas. It was one I spotted on the shelf at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore at the University of Chicago. Great bookstore. I glanced through it, and I thought, this has some possibilities. So, I took a picture of it, put it on my wish list for Christmas, and then my family came through. The book is called Is That Kafka? and it's by Reiner Stock, author of a landmark three-volume biography of the Czech modernist and surprisingly funny chronicler of 20th century misery and metamorphoses. So what we have in this book are 99 surprises, things drawn from Kafka's life by his biographer. I was once floored by the idea that Jean-Paul Sartre loved the song Old Man River. I have no idea why this took me by surprise or what that little nugget meant. A biographical nugget, but I wanted to know more. Why that song? What other music did he like? Does that factoid shed any light at all onto the life of the philosopher, his works, his passions, his hopes and dreams? Does it make him more human somehow? Well, I suppose it does that much at least, but does it make me more human to know about it? It still makes me chuckle 30 years later to remember my roommate, who was as struck by this as I was, singing Old Man River in a deep, ponderous voice, his brow for, his brow for, furrowed, <laughs> furiously furrowed, that's what I was going to say, with a hefty French accent. Kafka is perfect for this. He was the man who laughed until he cried, or was it that he cried until he laughed? And he put this attitude into his literature, his life. Our conception of him is full of cliches, as we'll talk about soon coming up in a couple of weeks with the translator of Kafka's diaries. 
That's a January episode. Let me let the biographer tell you all about it. This is Reiner Stock again. We'll read the first and last paragraph from the preface of the book. Is that actually? We'll we'll read the first paragraph. We'll save the last paragraph for later. Let's read the first paragraph of this book. Uh, of the preface of this book is that Kafka. Here we go. For some, he's a frightening figure. Others who haven't read him but have heard tell of him are only afraid he would frighten them. And many more find him sad, though they can't quite tell you why. Some, sensing a hint of depression, delicately set his slender books aside. Yes, there are plenty of reasons to keep him at arm's length, not least of which is the rumor that he was more or less insane, which persists to this day and finds ample nourishment even in his finished works. Of course, it is not the task of literature to provide a quick and reassuring solution to each problem that it raises, or to prove that everything has its good side. We know that that isn't true, and we don't like it when authors take us for fools. But when literature takes up the real failure that none of us can escape, refracting it again and again with evident relish in imagined failures, and when, in addition, it wraps all this up in an unrelenting, directionless discourse about failure, then we begin to wonder if the author has not perhaps given free rein to a thoroughly private obsession, and we ask why we should listen and look on as attentively as he apparently expects. Yes, failure. The private obsession that so many of us share. Failure. Why failure? Why does that appeal to us? We live in our failures, Martin Amos pointed out. Success disappears from our psyche, our imagination, our mind immediately. But failure haunts us. It's that attitude toward it, the approach taken, the isn't this awful, isn't this funny, that gets me with Kafka. It speaks to me. It's like almost like literary slapstick. And so I'm expecting to see some of that from these 99 surprises. I'm expecting to see some of this in Kafka's life. The back cover says, quote, each find chips away at the stereotypical version of Kafka as the dark, sexless, tortured neurotic. Kafka was fun. He couldn't lie, but he cheated on his exams. He avidly followed the regime of a Danish exercise guru. He drew beautifully. He made the most beautiful presents, especially to children. He loved beer and biographies and slapstick, end quote. There it is, slapstick. The New Yorker says this book is, quote, a box of fancy Austro-Hungarian chocolates, end quote. So here's what we're going to do. I don't want to eat this box of chocolates all at once, gorge myself, and then offer you some, some recollections of how the chocolate tasted. I'm going to select a chocolate at random, read it during our break, and then I'll come back, they're all short, and then I'll come back and tell you about what I just ate, what I just experienced. I'll, tell, I'll give you my honest reaction. If it's, if it's boring, I'll tell you that. If it's funny, I'll tell you why I thought so. I'm going to do this in more or less real time, and I won't cheat. 
I won't just read a hundred of them. I won't read 99 of them and pick out the three best. I have a random number generator here. It will choose a number from one to 99. And it is, it has chosen the number 26, which I see falls in the emotions section. And it is called Three Letters to His Father. So I'm going to taste this chocolate now and report back after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, big news, people. Our first attempt at this segment, and I'm going to break the rules. 26 was interesting. It was a couple of stabs that Kafka made at trying to communicate with his father. The two had a stormy relationship. Kafka acknowledges his own faults, says he has this great idea that he's going to write 100 things about their relationship. This is in a draft letter, one he never sent. His father can read it at the spa. And he says he woke up with joy in his heart at the idea of the project, which he then abandoned and didn't do. He later wrote a more famous letter to his father, which is not part of number 26. So as I wrapped up that one, I couldn't help reaching for the next chocolate, which is number 27. And guess what, people? That one's perfect for today. Kafka doesn't believe the doctors, it's called. And that sets up our Hemingway story so nicely, so we're just going to go with that one. We'll get two chocolates today. Kafka had a strong animosity toward doctors. He seems to have objected to their business focus, and he rejected many of their claims for cures. Medicine only knows how to treat pain with pain, he wrote in a letter, and then they say they've treated the disease. He put in his diary, quote, Examination at Dr. Crawl's, how he pushes up against me right away. I positively hollow myself out, and he gives his empty speeches inside me, despised and unrefuted. End quote. Despised and unrefuted. Remember those two words. He followed 
what doctors told him to do, Kafka did, even though he really did not value the advice and hated his encounters with doctors. Despised and yet unrefuted. He wrote to Felice Bauer, his first fiance, his longest and most complicated love, according to the Kafka Museum. He said to her in 1912, No, I don't believe the famous doctors. I only believe doctors when they say they don't know anything. And aside from that, I hate them. Parentheses, I hope you don't love any doctors. End quote. His distaste for doctors had long roots. He blamed them for the deaths of two of his younger siblings who died in infancy. And as a grown-up, he developed a preference for natural treatments, exercise, fresh air, sunbathing, healthy nutrition, reducing stress. But he never gave up doctors altogether. He kept going, even though they exasperated him. I have three doctors, he wrote in a letter to his sister. Quote, it wouldn't be so odd for them to give different advice. It would even be tolerable for them to give conflicting advice. But that each one contradicts himself, that is incomprehensible. End quote. Speaking of incomprehensible, here's a little news story from our era. It caught my eye. This is from CBS News. Just came out a couple days ago. Quote, a medical practice in England intended to text patients wishes for a very Merry Christmas. Instead, it told them they had aggressive lung cancer and asked them to fill out a form for terminal patients. End quote. Well, who among us hasn't made that error? You see someone on the street, they smile and say, Happy Holidays, my good man. And the holiday spirit overtakes you. You clap the man on the shoulder and say, and you have aggressive lung cancer. Good tidings and tis the season. And now let me share. (laughs) Okay, that's enough. Incomprehensible, but that's a 21st century happening. In the early 20th, medicine was not quite primitive. It wasn't bloodletting, but it was... That was when the machines were taking over and odd diagnoses and confident doctors who didn't mind blustering their way through illogical positions. Which brings me to our story. We are in the right time period with Kafka. This is World War I and the few years after, and we're on the right continent, Europe. Let's go a little further south from the Czech Republic. I guess it is now, then it was the Kingdom of Bohemia, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We'll travel from there, through the mountains, down to Italy, the other country, and the story in another country, and hear what Ernest Hemingway was doing with his doctors. There are a lot of similarities with Kafka, actually. If you remember that phrase, I asked you to recall. What was it? I've forgotten now. (laughs) Despised and... And unrefuted, that's what it is. You'll hear that in this story. Doctors with ideas for treatment, doctors who contradict themselves, patients who nevertheless try to follow their ideas as best they can, because what else is there to do but try, even as the incomprehensibility makes itself clear? Incomprehensibility, a fog of incomprehensibility 
with the light of humanity shining through. Our guest, Dr. Mark Chirino, host of the One True Podcast and editor of the book, One True Sentence, is here to help us set this up. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Mark Chirino, professor, author, Hemingway scholar, and host of the One True Podcast, which is devoted to all things Hemingway, including the fascinating question, if you were to choose one sentence from Hemingway's works, what would it be? Last time he was here, Mark and I each answered that question, so look for that episode in the archives. He's here today to discuss the new Hemingway stories that are freed from copyright restrictions now that we are in 2023. Mark Chirino, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much, Jack. It's great to be back on. So I feel like Hemingway is a good topic for the new year, something about wiping out the old and bringing in the new seems to fit with him, maybe because that's how he approached prose. I'm wondering, though, do you have a season you associate with Hemingway in particular? Well, I know we're going to be talking about In Another Country, mm. and that indelible first sentence talks about the fall. The fall, that, yes. And there's, you know, there's, al <laughs> so, there's also uh, Hemingway's grave marker in Idaho. It says, best of all, he loved the fall. Mm. And so I guess Hemingway is a man for all seasons, but let's just say the fall probably more than the others. Yeah, although... To do that, we have to set aside those wonderful descriptions of skiing and how yeah. he hiked up the mountains in the winter and and also uh, summers and bullfighting. That's right. July and you know, July mm. was the, the month of his wounding, the month of his birthday. And it's also the month of the Festival of San Fermin, as you say, in Pamplona. So, yeah, July is a, a big Hemingway month, too. <laughs> okay. Speaking of calendars and so on, we're going to be looking in particular at the year 1927 today. So this is when Hemingway was 27, turning 28. And where was he in his personal life? Okay, so... In order to talk about Hemingway in 1927, what we really should do is rewind a little bit towards the end of 1926, like mm -hmm. the, fall, the fall of 1926. So in the fall of 1926, The Sun Also Rises is just published, mm -hmm. and he is divorced from his first wife in December. Mm -hmm. So these are two professionally and personally colossal events. Yeah. I would just uh, get your listeners to to consider that from 1925 to 1929 is really the sweet spot of Hemingway studies. That's probably his prime, even though that is, uh, he's a young writer at that point. From 1925 to 1929, we have two great books of short stories, In Our Time and Men Without Women, and two great novels, The Sun Also Rises and A Farewell to Arms. So in those five years, you have those four really important publications. And of course, what we're talking about today, 1927, is right in the middle mm. of that. Mm -hmm. in, 1920, in April 1927, Scribner's Magazine publishes our story in another country. Hemingway uh, marries Pauline Pfeiffer, so that's wife number two. That's in May. And then in October, the volume of short stories, Men Without Women, is published. So yes, a huge, hugely important year and time for Hemingway. Hmm. And by the end of 1927, Pauline wants to return to America. She's pregnant at that point. 
with uh, Hemingway. It's for Hemingway, his second son, and they end up leaving Paris. But this is, I'm sure, for uh, scholars looking at that sweet spot. It's it's before the the Cuba years and oh, yeah. the Idaho years and so on. But it's really Paris is kind of I consider that to be kind of peak Hemingway. Yes, and so now we're transitioning, let's say, from Paris to Key West. Mm-hmm. And even the title of the story that we're going to be chatting about in another country, think about what that title means as a concept or a theme or an approach to Hemingway. So much of Hemingway's fiction takes place outside the United States. All of his novels, The Sun Also Rises in France and Spain, A Farewell to Arms in Italy and Switzerland, For Whom the Bell Tolls in Spain, The Old Man in the Sea Off of Cuba, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and so many of his short stories. So Hemingway is really a writer that we consider internationally. Mm, yeah. So I just wanted to orient our listeners with a few other milestones. So because we're going to be talking about his experiences in World War One. He had been wounded mm-hmm. in the war, which where he was an ambulance driver in Italy. He was wounded in 1918. So that's quite a few years before the story we're going to be talking about. He had uh, met Ezra Pound, James Joyce, Ford Maddox Ford, and Scott Fitzgerald. All that had happened in 1922 through 1925. So that's behind him as well. And bullfighting he had discovered in 1923, I understand. So so a lot of what we associate with Hemingway has been already kind of in the works. And he's kind of the mature person that we understand him to be in terms of his interests and kind of getting his career off to a start. Uh, I think that's absolutely accurate, Jack. And you make a really important observation that he's writing a lot of his war fiction as a more distant memory than something like The Sun Also Rises, which was is basically he's writing about an event that just happened. And it has that kind of immediacy. If you read the first pages of A Farewell to Arms, or if you read the first paragraph or two of In Another Country, there's a kind of a, I don't even want to say nostalgic, but a, a wistful, sentimental, a, a more distant memory in terms of the narrative voice that Hemingway is is using. So Hemingway wrote his post-war novel before his war novel. It, and it shapes the way you tell the story depending on when the event took place that you're remembering. Mm, right. Okay. So you had given me, when I said, let's do a story from 1927, you gave me four choices. And so before we turn to In Another Country, the one that I selected, let's talk about the three that I didn't choose. They're all excellent. And they're uh, at least two of them are quite famous. So yep. let's start with Hills Like White Elephants, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe his most famous story. It's certainly up there. How does that one fit into Hemingway's works? Yeah, so I think that is probably his most anthologized mm-hmm. story, probably that and The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Yeah. It's not just famous because it's famous. It's famous because it's great. Mm -hmm. And 90% of that story is dialogue between two people. And it shows you Hemingway's mastery of dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's also a masterpiece of omission. Uh, Last time we talked about the iceberg theory Mm -hmm. and how Hemingway artfully, strategically omits things in order to increase the power of the narrative. Well, Hills Like White Elephants is a prime example of that. And finally, I would also say that for 
people who object to the way that Hemingway characterizes women or presents them in fiction, the woman in Hills Like White Elephants has all the best lines. Mm. So I would really read that story with uh, that in mind, with gender dynamics in mind. Hills Like White Elephants is a masterpiece. Yeah. So for people, most people are probably familiar with it, but for people who aren't or need a reminder, it's a conversation in a Spanish train station, an American man and a young woman, they're discussing an operation which uh, mm. we can, most likely we can interpret that as an abortion. And I think it's it's open to a lot of different interpretations. And that's one of the things that I love about it. There's this kind of beauty in, in the willingness to live with multiple possibilities here, which is is kind of like what things are like in real life, right? Yeah. When they, you know, once things happen, then they happen. But before they happen, your mind is kind of full of all of the different possibilities of, of, well, what would this mean if this happened? And what would it mean if that happened? And, and Hemingway seems to have captured that, that moment. And, and I think it's frustrated some readers who want there to be a single explanation and, and maybe to argue for, well, no, this is what the couple does, or <laughs> this is what it means. And instead it's like, well, no, there's, there's a lot of different possibilities here. And, and Hemingway seems deliberately to be leaving those open. Exactly. When Hemingway uses that iceberg theory, uh, when he omits things for the reader to kind of fill in, you know, step one is to notice that he is omitting something. And step two is to figure out why. Mm -hmm. Why would the couple name the procedure that they are about to, that they're considering? Why would that be something that would be, uh, would be left blank? And once you start asking those questions, you begin to penetrate the story and the characters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, Hemingway hit it spot on with that story. It, it's it's just terrific. Now, one of the things I hadn't uh, even realized, uh, or maybe I knew it long ago and had completely forgotten, but that when he got remarried to Pauline in May of 1927, prior to that, he converted to Catholicism, mm. which... I didn't do the any additional research on it. My guess is that for Hemingway, that was kind of a uh, he could kind of take it or leave it at that point. It wasn't a probably a a conversion in the sense that T. S. Eliot or someone converted after a lot of thought, and it was probably something to please his new wife or her family or something. But but do you have any sense that I mean, is is abortion an issue that became suddenly prominent for him, or was Catholicism was that conversion a a big deal for Hemingway, or was it kind of like uh, just something to do before you get married? Well, as as you point out, the site of the argument is in a Spanish train station uh, in the 1920s. So to have this debate about abortion in a Catholic country in mm-hmm. the 1920s, I mean, he could have placed it anywhere, right? And so whatever biographical reading you want to do of the story with respect to Hemingway's own religion, that is definitely a pointed mm-hmm. presentation to have them in that Spanish place. Right. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. Also very famous, The Killers. Uh, what is appealing to us about that one? So I think The Killers is a perfect short story. Mm. It shows an episode in the life of Nick Adams, who is Hemingway's most used Mm -hmm. short story alter ego. 
And it is a short story where Nick comes face to face with uh, gangsters and violence. And he has to make a moral decision and he has to summon his own bravery and individuality at a relatively young age. And Hemingway's presentation of it is magnificent. And also this is what gave birth to a, a, a really good uh, adaptation of the, uh, the film noir movie mm. called The Killers with Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner that I think is one of the movies that Hemingway thought was pretty good. Mm-hmm. He usually resisted his own, uh, the own cinematic adaptations, but I think he liked that. And again, that's another one where he uses a lot of dialogue and detail and the killers. So it's a very powerful story. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he uses a racial epithet over and over in that story, mm. which might make it less likely that you would read it out loud on your podcast. So it does demonstrate that kind of language from the 1920s. But as a story, it's quite powerful. Mm. Two hitmen in a restaurant looking to kill a boxer. And and I have this great quote from Hemingway. It sounds very Hemingway-esque where he says, that story probably had more left out of it than anything I ever wrote. I left out all Chicago, which is hard to do in 2,951 words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they say, well, why are you killing this guy? And he's like, we're going to kill him for a friend. Mm. And those two words, like a friend, well, that could mean, a, you know, you yeah. could... You, that's the godfather right there. You know, you could go as deep as you want into that syndicate, but right. all, all that guy needs to know is a friend. And yeah. there you go. <laughs> okay, let's move to another Nick Adams story, Now I Lay Me. What would have made that one a good choice? Well, Now I Lay Me is a story that was originally titled In Another Country Part Two. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we can actually read that as a sequel to the story we're about to consider today. And in Now Now I Lay Me is a story about Nick Adams's insomnia due to shell shock from his World War I injury. And so it's talking about really how he stays awake and what he thinks about during these fitful nights. And then when it becomes light out, he's not quite so scared and he's able to go to sleep. So it's a really courageous story where Hemingway is penetrating the the psyche of a disturbed soldier. Mm, Yeah. And Jack, as you well know, if all you have to do is go through Hemingway's work and insomnia and fear of the dark is a consistent theme. Mm. It's a consistent theme. Uh, in the story we're going to read today in another country, the protagonist is never named, but his experiences are consistent with Hemingway's own and also with Nick Adams. So I think that's it's fair to see this as part of a, of a story sequence that deals with Hemingway's autobiographical experience getting wounded in Italy in 1918. Yeah. And there's so much of of Hemingway and the criticism of Hemingway, he became such a a larger-than-life figure, and so much of him sometimes seems to be bravado. And I don't mind the bravado if it is uh, an artifice and and there to cover things up. Where I worry is if it seems like the person who's exhibiting bravado is drinking their own Kool-Aid and and kind of believes that they're this sort of superhuman and, and full of strength and all that. But now I lay me as a good reminder that Hemingway could be quite vulnerable in his fiction. Oh, 
Of course. If you read and when when we discuss in another country, there are these passages where the protagonist narrator distinguishes his own attitude and experiences from his comrades. Yeah. And he is never, never uh, glorifying himself over anybody else. He's I find this to be a very humble story. Uh, it is absolutely true. I, as you suggest, that in Hemingway's own life as a young man, he would come home and he exaggerated what he did during World War One, and even as an older man, he would exaggerate what he did during World War Two. He said he killed 122 Nazis. So he, <laughs> for whatever reason, he would exaggerate things that were in and of themselves noble and courageous and honorable. He didn't need to exaggerate them. Yeah. Yet he did, which, as you say, is in this fiction when when he's humble and self-deprecating, modest. There's something very compelling about that. Yeah. Okay. So let's turn to In Another Country. We're going to take a break and I'm going to read this one to our listeners. And we mentioned one thing they might listen for, which is those moments of vulnerability. Is there anything else that we should set them up for before we begin? No, I would just say to enjoy the story and enjoy the language. And maybe the only one thing I would ask you to think about as context is think of how the narrator establishes the setting of the story mm. and then establishes the characters in the story. In other words, the people that the protagonist is around and associates himself with. So if you can think about how Hemingway distinguishes those things, it's going to be a great story. Okay. In Another Country, by Ernest Hemingway. In the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore. It was cold in the fall in Milan, and the dark came very early. Then the electric lights came on, and it was pleasant along the streets, looking in the windows. There was much game hanging outside the shops, and the snow powdered in the fur of the foxes, and the wind blew their tails. The deer hung stiff and heavy and empty, and small birds blew in the wind, and the wind turned their feathers. It was a cold fall, and the wind came down from the mountains. We were all at the hospital every afternoon, and there were different ways of walking across the town through the dusk to the hospital. Two of the ways were alongside canals, but they were long. Always, though, you crossed a bridge across a canal to enter the hospital. There was a choice of three bridges. On one of them, a woman sold roasted chestnuts. It was warm standing in front of her charcoal fire, and the chestnuts were warm afterward in your pocket. The hospital was very old and very beautiful, and you entered through a gate and walked across a courtyard and out a gate on the other side. There were usually funerals starting from the courtyard. Beyond the old hospital, were the new brick pavilions, and there we met every afternoon and were all very polite and interested in what was the matter and sat in the machines that were to make so much difference. The doctor came up to the machine where I was sitting and said, What did you like best to do before the war? Did you practice a sport? I said, Yes, football. 
Good, he said. You will be able to play football again better than ever. My knee did not bend, and the leg dropped straight from the knee to the ankle without a calf, and the machine was to bend the knee and make it move as in riding a tricycle. But it did not bend yet, and instead the machine lurched when it came to the bending part. The doctor said, That will all pass. You are a fortunate young man. You will play football again like a champion. In the next machine was a major who had a little hand like a baby's. He winked at me when the doctor examined his hand, which was between two leather straps that bounced up and down and flapped the stiff fingers and said, And will I too play football, Captain Doctor? He had been a very great fencer and before the war the greatest fencer in Italy. The doctor went to his office in a back room and brought a photograph which showed a hand that had been withered almost as small as the major's before it had taken a machine course, and after was a little larger. The major held the photograph with his good hand and looked at it very carefully. A wound? he asked. An industrial accident, the doctor said. Very interesting, very interesting, the major said, and handed it back to the doctor. You have confidence? No, said the major. There were three boys who came each day who were about the same age I was. They were all three from Milan, and one of them was to be a lawyer, and one was to be a painter, and one had intended to be a soldier. And after we were finished with the machines, sometimes we walked back together to the Café Cova, which was next door to the Scala. We walked the short way through the communist quarter because we were four together. The people hated us because we were officers, and from a wine shop someone called out, Abbasso gli ufficiali, as we passed. Another boy who walked with us sometimes and made us five wore a black silk handkerchief across his face because he had no nose then, and his face was to be rebuilt. He had gone out to the front from the military academy and been wounded within an hour after he had gone into the front line for the first time. They rebuilt his face, but he came from a very old family, and they could never get the nose exactly right. He went to South America and worked in a bank. But this was a long time ago, and then we did not any of us know how it was going to be afterward. We only knew then that there was always the war, but that we were not going to it anymore. We all had the same medals, except the boy with the black silk bandage across his face, and he had not been at the front long enough to get any medals. The tall boy with a very pale face who was to be a lawyer had been a lieutenant of Arditi, and had three medals of the sort we each had only one of. He had lived a very long time with death, and was a little detached. We were all a little detached, and there was nothing that held us together except that we met every afternoon at the hospital. Although, as we walked to the cova through the tough part of town, walking in the dark, with light and singing coming out of the wine shops, and sometimes having to walk into the street when the men and women would crowd together on the sidewalk so that we would have had to jostle them to get by, we felt held together by there being something that had happened that they the people who disliked us, did not understand. We ourselves all understood the cova, where it was rich and warm and not too brightly lighted, 
and noisy and smoky at certain hours, and there were always girls at the tables and the illustrated papers on a rack on the wall. The girls at the Cova were very patriotic, and I found that the most patriotic people in Italy were the cafe girls, and I believe they are still patriotic. The boys at first were very polite about my medals and asked me what I had done to get them. I showed them the papers, which were written in very beautiful language and full of fratellanza and abnegazione, but which really said, with the adjectives removed, that I had been given the medals because I was an American. After that, their manner changed a little toward me, although I was their friend against outsiders. I was a friend, but I was never really one of them after they had read the citations, because it had been different with them, and they had done very different things to get their medals. I had been wounded, it was true, but we all knew that being wounded, after all, was really an accident. I was never ashamed of the ribbons, though, and sometimes, after the cocktail hour, I would imagine myself having done all the things they had done to get their medals. But walking home at night through the empty streets, with the cold wind and all the shops closed, trying to keep near the streetlights, I knew that I would never have done such things, and I was very much afraid to die, and often lay in bed at night by myself, afraid to die, and wondering how I would be when I went back to the front again. The three with the medals were like hunting hawks, and I was not a hawk, although I might seem a hawk to those who had never hunted. They, the three, knew better, and so we drifted apart. But I stayed good friends with the boy who had been wounded his first day at the front, because he would never know now how he would have turned out, so he could never be accepted either, and I liked him, because I thought perhaps he would not have turned out to be a hawk either. The major, who had been the great fencer, did not believe in bravery, and spent much time while we sat in the machines correcting my grammar. He had complimented me on how I spoke Italian, and we talked together very easily. One day I had said that Italian seemed such an easy language to me that I could not take a great interest in it. Everything was so easy to say. Ah, yes, the major said. Why then do you not take up the use of grammar? So we took up the use of grammar, and soon Italian was such a difficult language that I was afraid to talk to him until I had the grammar straight in my mind. The major came very regularly to the hospital. I do not think he ever missed a day, although I am sure he did not believe in the machines. There was a time when none of us believed in the machines, and one day the major said it was all nonsense. The machines were new then, and it was we who were to prove them. It was an idiotic idea, he said, a theory, like another. I had not learned my grammar, and he said I was a stupid, impossible disgrace, and he was a fool to have bothered with me. He was a small man, and he sat straight up in his chair with his right hand thrust into the machine and looked straight ahead at the wall while the straps thumped up and down with his fingers in them. What will you do when the war is over, if it is over? He asked me. Speak grammatically. I will go to the States. Are you married? No, but I hope to be. The more of a fool you are, he said. He seemed very angry. A man must not marry. Why, Signor Maggiore? Don't call me Signor Maggiore. Why must not a man marry? He cannot marry. He cannot marry, 
he said angrily. If he is to lose everything, he should not place himself in a position to lose that. He should not place himself in a position to lose. He should find things he cannot lose. He spoke very angrily and bitterly, and looked straight ahead while he talked. But why should he necessarily lose it? He'll lose it, the Major said. He was looking at the wall. Then he looked down at the machine and jerked his little hand out from between the straps and slapped it hard against his thigh. He'll lose it, he almost shouted. Don't argue with me. Then he called to the attendant who ran the machines. Come and turn this damned thing off. He went back into the other room for the light treatment and the massage. Then I heard him ask the doctor if he might use his telephone, and he shut the door. When he came back into the room, I was sitting in another machine. He was wearing his cape and had his cap on, and he came directly toward my machine and put his arm on my shoulder. I am so sorry, he said, and patted me on the shoulder with his good hand. I would not be rude. My wife has just died. You must forgive me. Oh, I said, feeling sick for him. I am so sorry. He stood there biting his lower lip. It is very difficult, he said. I cannot resign myself. He looked straight past me and out through the window. Then he began to cry. I am utterly unable to resign myself, he said and choked. And then, crying, his head up looking at nothing, carrying himself straight and soldierly, with tears on both his cheeks and biting his lips, he walked past the machines and out the door. The doctor told me that the major's wife, who was very young and whom he had not married until he was definitely invalided out of the war, had died of pneumonia. She had been sick only a few days. No one expected her to die. The major did not come to the hospital for three days. Then he came at the usual hour, wearing a black band on the sleeve of his uniform. When he came back, there were large framed photographs around the wall of all sorts of wounds before and after they had been cured by the machines. In front of the machine the Major used were three photographs of hands like his that were completely restored. I do not know where the doctor got them. I always understood we were the first to use the machines. The photographs did not make much difference to the Major because he only looked out of the window. Okay, we're back with Dr. Mark Chirino. That was In Another Country. And you set up for us the setting and then the characters that kind of flow out of it. The first sentence, has anyone chosen that one for their one true sentence? In the Let me just repeat it. In the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore. In fact, the first episode in the history of One True Podcast was with the great Hemingway scholar and literary scholar, Kirk Kernut. 
And he said that that is his, that was his one true sentence. Yeah. I would also say this is a sentence that F. Scott Fitzgerald himself isolated and told Hemingway was one of the great sentences in the history of literature. So he said in the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore as a opening sentence. It is a thunderbolt. Mm, it truly is. It's, it's got the, the, the rhythm and the economy. I mean, it, it almost reminds me of something Shakespeare might have had in a sonnet. Yeah, that's, mm. it's great. In the fall, the war was that because I've never heard it described like that before, as if it's a, an event or a party or a spectacle mm -hmm. or something. But what it does is it sets up the kind of detachment, which yeah. is a word that emerges later in the story. You can also see about a page and a half into the story at the end of that glorious paragraph where he's talking about the th other three boys. And then he reminds us, we only knew then that there was always the war, mm -hmm. but that we were not going to it anymore. So as a kind of an overture that repeats itself about halfway through the story. Yeah. So Hemingway must have known what a powerful piece of prose that was. Yeah. It kind of reminded me, the first time I read it, it, it kind of reminded me of those stories of observers of Civil War battles who would pack picnic baskets and, and go out and sit on a hill and, and watch the battlefield below. And it, it just, I don't know, it seems like we often think of war as being like an on switch and an off switch. Right. You know, someone is, is drafted and then they're eventually they're discharged. And those are the, the bookends of the war experience. And in this one, it's more, you get the feeling of, well, no, it's kind of present throughout a countryside and maybe it affects your town a little more directly at times, a little less directly at times. And you know that maybe you hear the the gunshots in the distance or the the cannon in the distance, but or maybe sometimes it's quite close and you can't ignore it. But then there's other times where you, it's just sort of in the background and, and you know that your role in it is uh, no longer, you know, something that you need to show up for. Yeah. The, this, Jack, the first sentence of this story gets us to reconsider the uh, books four and five of A Farewell to Arms. In mm -hmm. other words, after Frederick has deserted and what he does, he, he, we see him eating salted pretzels, drinking dark beer in Switzerland and reading about the war that he has just deserted from. It's basically, it's like you'd watch a war on TV or mm -hmm. it's something that you could just switch off once you got bored of it. And this is why that phrase, a separate piece comes up in his short stories and also in this, in A Farewell to Arms, because it's saying, okay, so the nations want to keep fighting. That's okay. You can, you can do it, whatever you want to do. I can declare a separate piece. Mm -hmm. The war was over for me. And if I want to read a paper about it, I will. If I don't, I won't. And so it's that detached stance that Hemingway has. And it it's compressed into this first sentence that that you read. Yeah. Oh, the whole first paragraph is beautiful. The first two really are beautiful. They're, it's all about death, the hunted game that's hanging stiff and heavy and empty in the shops. And there's the funerals discussed and the cold wind. But there's also life. I mean, it's the game is to be eaten and there's roasted chestnuts and the warm chestnuts in your pocket feel good. And it's kind of, 
you know, it, it is this thing of, like you're saying, the war is there, but you can choose to be in it or not. And, and your life is going to continue and you have to kind of embrace that as well. I agree with you about the entire first paragraph or two in the second sentence. Um, listen to the, it. It was cold in the fall in Milan and the dark came very early. So the second sentence starts out with an anapestic tetrameter. It was cold in the fall in Milan and the dark. That's incredible. Uh, came very early and then he disrupts it at the end. But it has that kind of uh, poetic fluency in, mm -hmm. even in the in the second. And I would also add, so we have in the fall in the first sentence, and then again in the fall in the second sentence. Um, as the first paragraph goes along, it says, the, the wind blew their tails, small birds blew in the wind, and the wind turned their feathers. It was a cold fall, and the wind came down from the mountains. So we have the wind blowing all through the first paragraph, right? We have the wind four, four different times. Yeah. Hemingway obviously was presenting this in a poetic way to put us in that cold fall in Milan in 1918. Yeah. And then sat in the machines that were to make so much difference. And we get in that. <laughs> Again, it's so economical. You know, he could describe... Oh, all the people were so excited about these machines, but obviously we we were dubious that they were yep. going to matter. And and it turns out that they didn't matter much. And, you know, it, he captures all of that just in that that were to make so much difference. You know, people are selling him on that and he's not buying it and neither should we be. Yeah, that's so much difference is you know, <laughs> dripping with sarcasm. Right. Um, right. However, you know, it's it's interesting that that they can be respectful of the doctor. Right. And they're going along with it. They're giving Even, it a try. Yeah, right. It's it's like, what are they going to do? You know, what what else are they going to do? So they're they're going along with it, but there's that kind of futility to it. Mm -hmm. There's sort of that it's like, all right, I'm, I'm, I might as well do it. But there's there's not yeah. much not much going on. Right. And the uh we felt held together by there being something that had happened that they, the people who disliked us, did not understand. And I wanted to ask you what you think that something is. I have ideas, but I wanted to see if they accord with yours. Well, I'm definitely interested to hear what yours are, Jack. The thing that bonds these guys together is, first of all, their war experience. Second mm -hmm. of all, their wounding yeah. And so they have sacrificed. In in The Sun Also Rises, there's that wonderful phrase by Brett Ashley where she says about Count Mippipopoulos, he's one of us. Mm. And that's all that's all she needs to say. Mm -hmm. And what that really means is you know, he gets it. He gets it. Yeah. And, and the Count has been to war. Brett has been to war. Jake Barnes has been to war. So there's sort of a an understanding. It sort of gives them a an outlook on life that mm -hmm. they share. Yeah. Um, perhaps you can get it without war experience, but certainly sharing that war experience is going to make it a common perspective. And so when they're heckled by these citizens, by these communists, it's like, well, this bonds them together because they're not part of us. They're not one of us. They're people who just don't understand. Yeah. Hemingway returned to this over and over and over. And I I get the feeling that he truly viewed it as something that was happening in his life, that there would be, 
experts or whether they're bullfighters or fishermen or there are people who, you know, hunters, people who got it and people who didn't yeah. and who could recognize sometimes just by looking at someone or looking into their eyes or talking to them briefly and knowing this is someone who will understand me and and I know uh, uh, I will understand him. And we share this together that other people are just not going to get. Yes. And I would add to that, there's a distinction between being a tourist hmm. and then acting like you are of that yeah. country or of that city. Um, drinking and yeah. eating, there's a way to do that, that you know what you're doing and you're not being just haphazard about it. You know, there's a novel that Hemingway wrote later in his career called Across the River and Into the Trees, which is widely derided. But for whatever reason, I've spent a lot of time on that novel also taking place in Italy. And the hero, Colonel Cantwell, establishes this really juvenile club that is really like an order, like an like a medieval order where it's just him and his friends and then they get to talk about everybody else who isn't part of that order. And on the one hand, it's like it's really kind of catty and juvenile and you you wish he would just grow up. But Jack, when you're explaining it like the way you did, there seemed to be a need for the characters to, to have this sort of to be on a team. Mm. It's like it's it's us against everybody else. It's us against the world. Uh, and Hemingway, you're right. I think Hemingway seemed to take a lot of comfort in that. And so so did his characters. Yeah. Uh, how did he feel about being an ambulance driver? Is this an example, like you were saying in the first part, of something that is noble and it's brave and there is no reason to be embarrassed by it or anything? And yet it seems like Part of him wishes people would have thought that his wound came from something other than driving an ambulance. I agree. I agree with all of that. The only thing I would I would say as a, as a counterpoint is remember the way Frederick Henry in A Farewell to Arms gets blown up. He's eating cheese, mm. right? He's, he's, he's getting blown up in the most absurd way possible. He's not storming a hill. So Hemingway never, you know, so he kind of captured the anti-heroic quality of mm -hmm. being blown up in war is that he Hemingway never in, at least in his fiction he always recognized the kind of randomness to war and yeah. look at this this story how one of these guys in, in another country can get his nose blown off he didn't do anything wrong he just got his nose blown off right and it's just random the way war works and that you can get wounded when you wouldn't even seem to be at risk but that's that's part of it. Yeah, he seems like <laughs> I read this story that uh, he had a scar on his forehead and it had actually come from he was using the bathroom <laughs> one evening and uh, he was pulling on a what he thought was a chain to the toilet. And instead, he happened to pull a skylight down onto his head and he oh, yeah, he got this scar. <laughs> and then afterward, when people would ask how he had gotten it, he was reluctant to answer <laughs> And yet, it, as you note, it seems like Hemingway, the author, didn't mind making fun of characters. And right. Hemingway, the famous person, though, seems like he could sometimes be a little bit humorless about himself. Uh, I love that story because Ezra Pound said, are you telling me you got so drunk you fell up <laughs> through the skylight? <laughs> 
<laughs> and yeah, if you look at these pictures in, especially in the late twenties, early thirties, he has a welt on his head. It's like a chunk was taken out of his forehead. Um, you're like, yeah, is it shrapnel? Is it, what was it? Nope. It, you're exactly right. It was a skylight. And, but yet, as this story shows, he, his character, you know, in there's a citation that's given to him and he says, yeah, if you remove the adjectives, you'll see that I basically got it just for being an American. And then at night he lies in bed by himself, afraid to die and wondering how it would be when he gets back to the front. He, he almost seems to, to suggest here that he's, he's worried about his own sense of courage and and he seems like others are whether they're it's because they're reckless or foolhardy or just braver but for whatever reason he feels like he might not live up to the kind of standard that they're setting and whether Hemingway meant to reveal that about himself or knew that it would be very powerful to put it in the mind of a character uh, it is that kind of vulnerability that we were talking about earlier that is makes his best of his fiction so much more compelling than kind of the cliched Hemingway story. Yeah, and and he advances the simile of of the hunting hawks. Mm, yeah, right. The the three <laughs> with the medals were like hunting hawks, and I was not a hawk, although I might seem a hawk to those who had never hunted. This is a, incredibly aware, which is yeah. to say, okay, someone maybe like me, like a literature professor reading the story in the 21st century might be like, well, Hemingway sure did have an incredible experience at war. That was brave. That mm -hmm. was noble. But Hemingway himself knows that there are others who might have even done more. Um, I also think this would be a moment to consider that Hemingway's war heroes, or let's say his war characters, protagonists, are fighting in another country. Mm. And so this is an American fighting abroad, just like Frederick Henry and so many more, Nick Adams. And it's something like being maybe being among the Italians, that they have a different, they have different stakes in the conflict. Maybe they're more assured, you know, the guys in the Arditi, you know, the sort of the shock forces of the, of the war. And maybe this character is aware that he's just a little bit of an outsider. And I think that's also where the Italian language comes in, that yes. kind of blow up at the end about the Italian language. Yes. And that's where Hemingway, the master artist, is really appearing because he captures something that I think everybody who's traveled to another country knows and for me it, it actually <laughs> happens to be italy was the the place where i was first living and trying to speak italian to other people and when the the man says i cannot resign myself mm. and you you know the first part where hemingway is talking about learning italian and how he learns it easily and then he has to learn grammar and he realizes it's much more difficult and and that struck me when i read it this time that you know that's a bit of a, a travelogue kind of comment and it, it feels a little bit like oh and then i lost my luggage and we kind of roll our eyes like yeah maybe that was interesting for you at the time but actually he's setting us up for this moment where this dignified person who's going through this and yet is speaking in language that that hits our ear as kind of comically formal 
And mm. it's not clear if he's speaking in Italian and, and this is how the narrator interprets it, or if he's speaking in English and these are the words he's finding, but it almost doesn't matter. When we're talking in another language or when we're hearing people and translating it in our minds into our language, this is how words come across a lot of the time. And there's something endearing about it, something, you know, it can make people sound almost like children or exactly. like it, it boils down their emotions and their experiences. And your heart just goes out to him because he's, he's saying something and you know that the sentiment here is something that's so beautiful. It's, it's perfectly said in a way, I cannot resign myself. We yeah. know what that means, but nobody would really say that in English probably. Yeah. And at, at the very least, this is how Hemingway conveys foreignness. Yeah. He put he puts you in another country linguistically without it being so distracting that it's like ham-handed or, right, sho right. or showy or technique-y. It's just that one artfully chosen word. And I think the resign is a really the perfect one to look at because it kind of sticks out. You're like, I've never heard anybody say something exactly like that. Mm-hmm. The irony is they're arguing about language and this moment of language becomes, you know, a, a really important critical tool. It's also obvious that even though I do know Italians get very passionate about their language being spoken correctly, that the guy is not upset mm -hmm. about Nick or the protagonist's inability to speak grammatically. You know, he's sublimating his grief and anger and trauma through this other issue, which is speaking Italian properly. Think about how much stronger the story is that he's yelling about that rather than something else, yeah. right? And then finally, it comes out about this this final moment about a man must not marry. Mm. I also, I would just add to, add to this, Jack, not to go on too long, but the ending of Now I Lay Me, which is a companion story in Men Without Women, is that Nick is getting the advice that he must marry. So he's hearing advice from Italians that are completely opposite for completely opposite reasons. Mm. What do you make of the title, Men Without Women? Yeah, well, actually, most of these stories, that's true enough. Men Without Women, in fact, the the major in our story in another country is a man that is now without a woman. Yeah. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean men who are happy <laughs> being without women. Right. It means this is the state. Either in this case, one outlives the other or they're off to war or they're doing something like bullfighting or some other violent act where women are not present. The title in another country comes from Christopher Marlowe. He says, thou hast committed fornication, but that was in another country. And besides, the wench is dead. Mm. Uh, it's also a little epigraph that T.S. Eliot uses in Portrait of a Lady. And think about that, right? The wench is dead. So it yeah. becomes a kind of an ironic title in what has happened to the major at the end of the story. Yeah. And he was, I mean, <laughs> around this time, he had his first wife and they had a child and then he was having this affair. She found out about it. And so mm -hmm. for a while, he almost had too many women. And <laughs> then uh, he went through this divorce and 
it's not until much later where it's very, uh, I always found it to be very moving in a movable feast when he looks back and says, I probably handled that wrong or, or Hadley was, was, a you know, he, he has a lot of praise for Hadley. And at this time though, maybe he's kind of thinking, boy, life would, you know, it's kind of a can't live with him, can't live without him yeah. kind of uh, period in his life. Yeah, I think that's that's true when the, there's a kind of a famous moment at the end of the Hadley relationship in sort of the transition between first and second wife where Hadley says, okay, I will grant you a divorce if you want to marry Pauline. The only thing I insist upon is that you guys spend 100 days apart. And if you still want to marry her after the 100 day separation, then that's fine. And so Hemingway, it's like the <laughs> making of, of, of a romantic comedy or, yeah. or, or some, something like that. I don't know why that why Hadley thought that was a good idea. But in any case, uh, apparently during that stretch, Hemingway was depressed and lonely to the point of being suicidal. Mm. And this is he's in his late 20s. And so, yes, it's true. Hemingway did marry four times. And he really had very little time in between them. So he always had a wife. He always had somebody, he very rarely was really all by himself. In fact, when Martha Gellhorn, his third wife, went off to war, Hemingway was like, this is not what a, this is not how I envisioned a marriage. This is not how I envisioned a relationship is that I'm here all by myself, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Men Without Women becomes very thematically really important in all of these stories. Right. And as usual with Hemingway, there's one way to look at it as, oh, that's, oh, isn't that just your dream, Hemingway, meant to be in a world of men and masculinity and there's no women to get in your way and drag you down and, and, you know, you wanted Scott to dump Zelda and all of that. But it's also Men Without Women are men almost at their loneliest, most vulnerable. It displays kind of the the weakness men have when they're living in this sort of uh, isolation. Well, the major says, the major argument is that a man shouldn't marry. Why not? Because if you love somebody and you lose them, it hurts so much mm. that it's almost not worth it or that it, it maybe it's not worth it. So what he's really doing, and of course we're catching the major as sort of an immediate sadness or trauma, mm -hmm. but he's really talking about the power of love and the importance of it and the wonder of being in a great relationship and giving yourself over to a, another person or to a relationship. So by saying, a man must not marry. Why not? Is because the emotions are too much. It hurts too much. So mm -hmm. in uh, we understand the major for saying that, that, hey, it's it would have been better if I didn't get married because it hurts too much. Well, what you're really doing is you're telling us that it was so meaningful and it, it did mean so much to you. So although it hurts now, it was important. You see how it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. And the photographs did not make much difference to the major because he only <laughs> looked out of the window. It's like a, a much imitated kind of ending of, you know, there's almost nothing left to say 
just the image of somebody who's lost in thought or or contemplating is better than trying to describe what's in his mind. Yep, he's looking off futility, hopelessness, and he's at a point where, again, Hemingway is, is capturing him at a point of an emotional depth, but that emotional depth is also emotional. Hmm. So he's not, Hemingway is not saying, you know, these these people who go to war are automatons mm-hmm. and men without women can be a circumstance, uh, but it's not always their choice. Uh, it, look at, I mean, going back to Hills Like White Elephants. Um, well, that's a story between a man and a woman, although it's possible that the man is soon to be a man without a woman. But th- again, that's open to interpretation. Hmm. Okay. So speaking of Sequels. I understand you are also devoting an episode of your podcast to the story. You have an Italian scholar who's going to join you. Uh, what might listeners expect to hear if they listen to this one and then jump over to the One True Podcast to hear your take on In Another Country? Well, I appreciate that, Jack. Uh, on One True Podcast, we're welcoming Martina Mastandrea mm. to talk, an Italian scholar to talk about this uh, Italian short story. I will say, in terms of a teaser, that one of the great things is Martina reads the first paragraph in Italian. Mm. So yeah. if for no other reason, of course, she lends a great <laughs> deal of insight, including her perspective as an Italian, to this setting. But we get to hear the way that that first paragraph translates into Italian. And it, so it's great to listen to. Mm, Okay. Well, the story is In Another Country by Ernest Hemingway. My guest is Dr. Mark Chirino, and his podcast is The One True Podcast. Mark Chirino, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Jack, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature, a cracking good way to bring in the new year, an absolute banger. Kafka and Hemingway, and of course, Dr. Mark Chirino. My thanks to him for joining us today. We will be back on Thursday with, well, that one's shifting a bit. We might have a surprise for you. But next Monday is locked in. That's going to be Emma Smith and her book about books. The history of them, their tangible nature, their effects on us, their uses and misuses. That's an episode not to be missed. Edith Wharton is on the horizon. And Goethe. And Margaret Fuller, the best-read individual in 19th century New England, bar none. Take that, Emerson and Hawthorne and Thoreau and Melville. They all admired Margaret Fuller for the depth and quality of her mind, her reading, and her conversation. We'll hear about what she wrote, too. We've got some good poets coming up, and at least one major, major novel. A big one, so... Lots of good stuff in the works. Please join us for those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.